0: Uh, we are starting a new series today, and I'm pretty excited about it. And the series uh, is one that we are calling "Redefining the Good Life." So I'd like to start by asking you, what comes to your mind when you hear the phrase "the good life"? And someone had a great idea this last week. Someone I work with that we should we should ask this question to Facebook. And so I did that. I, I asked the question. To my friends on Facebook, what comes into your mind when you think of this phrase, the good life? And about 25 people replied and and gave me their input, and I really appreciated that. And I just wanted to share with you some of the most popular responses that I received from my Facebook friends. One of the things that many people said was that a good life is a life with no worries. In fact, some people use the phrase hakuna matata, and I'm assuming those are people who grew up in the 90s. And know what that means, but it means no worries, I'm assuming, right? No worries. Uh, other people said it's a life of financial freedom, where you, where you have no stress, no financial stress. Some, some people said it's, uh, it's about having a great job, a job that I love. Um, someone said, and a lot of people sort of said something like this, it's about autonomy, personal autonomy, being able to do what you want, where you want, and when you want. And then there were some people who I might refer to as spiritual nerds who decided to chime in, and and one of them gave just an outstanding response, and, and, and he said, for me, life is good when, through the gospel, I sense God's approving smile over my life because of Christ. Life is also good when I please God by walking in obedience to his will. The result is inner joy, which supersedes every circumstance, good or bad. And when I first read that, I thought, who talks like that? Well it, it, you know what it doesn't matter. That was a great answer. <laughs> it's a great definition of the good life, even though it was different from everyone else's, and we'll probably go back to that at some point. But you get the idea. Probably when, when, when I first asked you that question, you know, what comes to your mind when you think about the good life? It wasn't too far off from from something that some one of these people said. But honestly, the the biblical writers, all the different there's forty different people who, who wrote all the different books of the Bible. And and none of them really talk about the good life the way that we do. They don't really think about the good life the way that we do. They don't really talk about the good life at all, actually. (laughs) They aren't really concerned with comfort and ease of life. They aren't concerned with wealth or financial freedom. They aren't focused on making their dreams a reality. They're not concerned about their personal safety. They're not concerned about their personal autonomy. They're not driven to make a name for themselves. They don't care much about even cherishing family or friends. They don't. That was one of the most popular things that people said was just you know, being, being around my family and friends and enjoying life with them. The biblical writers don't really emphasize that all that much. And that's not to say that they don't, they don't place value on having a strong family and having meaningful friendships. Yes, those are, those are important things in life and, and those things are valuable to the Christian life, but that's not what life is all about. Having a strong family and meaningful friendships is not the essence of life. It's just not. You can have a strong family and great friends and totally miss out on the best things in life, according to God. So what is the thing that that we're supposed to be after? I mean, the people who wrote the Bible are driven people. They are passionate. They're focused. What are they driven by? What are they chasing? What mattered most to them? What's the key to the good life, according to God? The answer is glory. Glory. The good life is full of glory. That is the number one answer the Bible gives us as it relates to the good life. According to God's word, my whole life has one primary purpose, and that purpose is the glory of God. And I want to share with you just a few passages that that make this, I think, pretty clear. In Psalm chapter 8, this is a Psalm of David. It's one that many of you have heard before. This is what he, he writes. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. And what, what David is trying to express here is that God has created us in His image and He's bestowed on every human being, whether they acknowledge God or not, some something of His glory. Every human being radiates the glory of God in some way because we're created after His image. We're crowned with glory. We're, we're His prize creation. That's what we're made for. In Ephesians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul writes, In love, God predestined us for adoption as sons... Through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, why? To the praise of his glorious grace. In other words, the reason that God chooses people to be adopted into his family is for his glory. That's the number one reason. In Philippians chapter four, verses nineteen and twenty, we read, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Here we're told that God is able to meet all of our needs. And how does he do that? From the storehouses of his glory. In 2 Corinthians 3:18, it says, "And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another." This verse is telling us that we are being transformed, we're being changed as followers of Jesus. And how does that happen? By beholding the glory of the Lord, by taking it in, by seeking it. In 2 Corinthians 4:6, one of my favorite verses, in fact, I believe we looked at this verse last week. It says, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What that means is that God has shown in our hearts, he's changed our hearts so that we can grow in the knowledge of his glory by knowing Jesus. Knowing Jesus is about God's glory. that's what it's all about. And in 1 Corinthians 10.31, this is maybe the most straightforward verse of all of them. It tells us, it applies all of these verses to our lives. In 1 Corinthians 10.31 We have a summary statement, which says, So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Do you know what all these passages are saying? Glory is what we were made for, and nothing in all the world should matter more to us than the glory of God. What is the glory of God? What, I mean, what, even, what, what are we talking about when we talk about the glory of God? I think we need to at least try to define it. And I have to tell you, the more I study the glory of God and the more I think about it, the more I pray about it, the less adequate I feel to talk about it. The less adequate I feel to teach it. It's just one of those subjects that makes you feel so small and so insignificant. And I think that's how it's supposed to be. And so a theologian would tell you that the glory of God is simply the sum of all of his attributes. It's all of God in full force. It's his love. It's his compassion. It's his mercy. It's his grace. It's his wisdom. It's his power. It's his transcendence. It's all of that. And, and glory really is, is a lot like beauty in the sense that you can't really describe beauty to someone. You have to show it to them. And so most of the biblical writers don't even give us plain, they don't even try to define God's glory. All they do is is they make comparisons. They try to compare God's glory to something that we know. Because God's glory is something we don't know. And so the biblical writers try to just compare God's glory to things that we see. So for example, they say at times God's glory is like a devouring fire, or it's like many rushing, it's like the sound of many rushing waters or it's like the expanse and brightness of the stars and the planets or it's like the beauty of a rare jewel. But in the Old Testament, the most common display of God's glory was in the form of a giant thundercloud that that sort of followed Israel out of Egypt after God delivered them out of Egypt and then it enveloped and covered Mount Sinai when Moses went up the mountain to receive God's law, and then later it filled the tabernacle. And we read about this glory cloud all throughout um, the the first few books of the Bible. And how that cloud represented God's presence and God's glory. The Hebrew word for glory actually means something like weight. And so the idea is that anytime God's glory shows up, it, it shakes everything up because God's glory is heavier than everything else. So when God's glory descended on the mountain, the mountain shook because God's glory, God's presence is heavier than the mountain. That's the idea. But the most direct definition that we, we ever get of God's glory is this. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the man, is the glory of God. God. He is the glory of God. And in a couple weeks, we're going to to talk a lot more about that. But today, we're going to just draw one basic conclusion about God's glory. And that is that God's glory is the presence of God. God's glory is the presence of God. And I'm not talking about God's omnipresence. You know, We know that God is always present everywhere, because God is spirit, but we... When we're talking about God's glory and God's presence, we're talking about his relational presence. In other words, God shows himself to people in very real and unforgettable ways, and whenever that happens, those people know that they've been in the presence of God. It's unmistakable. And so I have to ask: Has that happened to you? Have you encountered God's glory? Has God's glory rearranged your life? Has it shaken up your life? And any time that that happens, anytime God's glory visits somebody, God moves from the margins to the center. And whatever it was that those people used to care about or whatever it was that they were driven by, whatever it was they were chasing, whatever mattered most to them is a thing of the past and their new passion and their new purpose becomes the glory of God. Because when you catch a glimpse of the glory of God, you realize that God's glory is, is, is bigger and wider and longer and deeper and heavier and more worthy than everything else that people live for. And it sort of consumes you that's that's how that's how it works and I have to ask, has that happened to you? Has your life been invaded by the glory of God And I'm not talking about you hearing the audible voice of God. remember we, we talked about that last week, Jesus calling your name. We're not talking about an audible voice where God speaks your name, and the people around you say like, "Well, what was that thunder I mean Yes, that happened at times in the Old Testament. That's not what we're talking about right now. I'm not talking about you seeing a blinding light or having a vivid dream. I'm talking about you and I being moved or or knocked off of our center. I'm talking about God coming into your life in such a way that everything is changed. So that you're no longer consumed with yourself and instead, you are now consumed with God and his glory. That's, that can only happen by God's glory coming into your life. Has that happened to you? And I, I, and I want to tell you something you already know. And I know you probably already know this. There's a reason we don't experience more of God's glory and presence in our lives. And the reason is Sin. Sin is the reason. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And in the word sin there, it means to miss the mark. But sometimes we think that, that what that means is that we were actually aiming at the glory of God and we fell short. But really, the verse means something more like we could have had the glory of God, But instead, we chose something else. We gave that up. We could have had the good life, but we gave it up. That's what the verse is saying. In in the book of Jeremiah, God explains this further. In chapter 2, verses 11 to 13, God says about Israel, My people have changed their glory. That could also be translated God's glory that he shared with them. For that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me. The fountain of living waters and hewed out cisterns for themselves. Broken cisterns that can hold no water. A cistern was like a well. In other words... (laughs) God's people have exchanged the one thing worth living for, the glory of God, for other things that do not profit, things that are not worth living for. They've exchanged the presence of God in their lives, which here is described as a fountain of living water. The presence of God is described as this never-ending source of joy, and people have walked away from that... They've walked away from the fountain of life and instead dug this big hole in the ground and lined it with clay and stone and filled it with things that they thought could replace God. Family, friends, wealth, possessions, success, but there's a problem. That hole that they dug in the ground, that cistern is broken. It has a big crack in it. And everything they put in there, everything they cherish above God, will slowly slip slip away and leave them empty. It'll, It'll just end up a big empty hole. Because that's how sin works. That's what sin does. It can never satisfy us. It's like dirty water from a broken cistern that's constantly draining out. Well, God's glory is like this pure rushing water from a fountain that will never, ever dry up. In other words, sin is everything God is not. Sin leaves people empty. God leaves people full. Sin destroys relationships. God heals relationships. Sin destroys people. God redeems people. Sin destroys creation. It destroys families. It robs God of what he wants. And that's you. God wants you. He wants a relationship with you. He wants to be known by you. He wants to show up and shake up your life and rearrange your priorities so that you can experience life abundantly. You see, living for God's glory and living with complete joy are the same. They're the same. God is seeking a vital relationship with you in which you are living for God's glory and dependent on him for life and for happiness and all of your needs. But sin makes you dependent on you. Sin comes along and says, you don't need God for that. You don't need God to be happy. You don't need God to have peace and meaning in your life. You don't need God. Your life is about you, not about God. See, what we do is we, we place ourselves in the center and we make, we make ourselves the judge of God. And we, we judge whether or not God is worthy of us. Isn't that sometimes how we think? We, or we take God's word and instead of coming under God's word and submitting ourselves to God's word, we act as judge over God's word. And all of those lies that the enemy tells us, they influence us. But they're lies. They're lies. Here's what's true about you. Here's what's true about me. Through faith in Jesus, my identity is wrapped up in God and the work he's doing. That means that my life is about God. It's not about me. So no matter what is going on in my life, it's for one purpose, the glory of God. So I have to ask you, are you living for God's glory? How much does God's glory matter to you? How much does God's glory matter to you? And now this is important because when our lives are going well, it's, it's easy, it's, it's sort of easy for us to say, God is great, God is good, God is worthy, Right? It's easy for me to give thanks and praise and glory to God when when I'm on the podium, you know, when things are going the way I wanted them to. It's easy to give God glory when you get the new job, when you get the promotion, when you get the big raise, when you have a healthy baby. It's easy to be thankful to God and to talk about God when your kid does something great, when your loved one is healed, When your prodigal son comes home, it's easy to say, God, you're so good. You're so great. You're so trustworthy. When your teenage daughter says, Mom, I just want to spend more time with you so I can be just like you when I grow up. We want to say, God, you're so good. Or when your wife comes home and says, honey, I just want you to know I'm sorry and I realize I've been wrong the whole time. Then we can say, God, you're so good. Hallelujah. And when your husband comes up to you and says, Honey, I just finished reading this book, and I realize I'm not loving you the way you deserve to be loved. There are times when we find it easy to say, God, you're so good. I worship you. I want to obey you. I want more of you. If this is what your presence brings, I want more of it. But here's the thing. That's not how life goes for most of us. Most people... For most people, their life is not gone according to plan. That's just the truth. For many people, life has been a series of disappointments. And what you think about and say about God in those times is actually a really good measure of whether or not you're living for God's glory. There's a... There's this passage in one of the Gospels. It's only in one of the Gospels. And we we looked at it a couple of years ago, and it it came back into my mind this last week as I was thinking about this. It's in John chapter 11. It's the story of Lazarus. You remember that story? In the first few verses of John chapter 11, we read this amazing story about how Jesus brought someone back to life. And this is how the story starts. It says, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha, It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, Jesus, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. They didn't even have to use Lazarus' name. Jesus loved this. This was one of Jesus' closest friends. He knew who who they were talking about. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God. So that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Mary and her sister Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now, this is kind of a strange passage. Think about that. We read that Lazarus is terribly ill and that his sickness is for God's glory. Isn't that kind of strange? Like, you, here's Jesus who's been going around all of uh, Palestine healing people of the worst kinds of sicknesses and bringing glory to God. And here we read that this man is dying from a sickness and it's for God's glory. Well, that doesn't, that doesn't make sense at first, does it? And then it gets even stranger. In verse 5 and 6, we read that Jesus loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus so much And he loved them so much that he ignored their message. He he waited. He waited two more days while Lazarus is on his deathbed. He doesn't rush to to their aid. Here they are in this desperate situation. They're obviously pleading for Jesus to come as quickly as he can. And Jesus loved them so much that he stays. He stays away from them. And here's what, here's what the Apostle John is saying. It was better that Mary and Martha sit by their brother and watch him suffer and die in agony while Jesus stays away so that God gets glory. And, and what that means, what that means, I think, is that God might say to you at times, I can get more glory if I take that thing from you, than if I leave it alone. I can get more glory if you lose that, if you suffer, if your plans fall apart, than if everything goes your way. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not really looking for that kind of glory. I'm not praying for that to happen in my life. Are you? I would prefer the kind of glory that comes from winning, quite honestly, not losing. I would rather have God glorify Himself in my life by giving me a successful career. I would love for God to show up in my life and and, and reveal His glory and all the great things that my children accomplish. That's how I want God's glory to be revealed. I I don't think I want the glory sometimes that comes from one of my kids making terrible choices or getting a debilitating disease or having to go through a valley in my marriage. I don't really want the kind of glory that involves me failing or losing something or someone that is precious to me. That is not the way I would prefer to experience God's glory in my life. But you know what? That's not, my, that's not up to me. That's not up to you. Now, you all know what happened with Lazarus. Jesus approaches the tomb and he raises him from the dead. But he died first. He had to die. Why? So that God could be glorified in his life. Well, God, why not just keep him alive the whole time? Why why let him die? Why let Mary and Martha go through that agony? The answer is glory. Glory. Shortly after the whole Lazarus deal, Jesus said to his disciples, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. But whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Do you know what I think that means? When Jesus says whoever loves his life In this world, I think he's talking about what we usually think about as the good life. That's what I think he's talking about. He's talking about the things most people think are worth living for. Jesus is saying we need to die to that definition of the good life. And we need to start living for God's glory. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said to his disciples, he said, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. And give glory to your Father in heaven. If your life is about God, people will look at your life. They'll look at your relationships. They'll they'll look at your decisions. They'll look at your attitude. And they won't praise you, they'll praise God. They will see you and hear you and watch how you respond to disappointment, how you respond to criticism how you respond to success and accomplishment and praise. And they'll come to this conclusion. God is great. God is good. He is faithful. He is worthy. And the reason they will praise God and not you is not because of you. It's not because of how awesome you are. It's because you've made it clear that God is your reason. You've made it known to them that God is your reason for everything. That God is your goal. In all of life, the thing that matters most to you is God's glory. You've made that known to them. Your life is all about Him, whether in good times or bad times. It's all about Him. God, whatever kind of life you give me, you know, this this picture of the good life I have over here, or a life that's full of chaos and disappointment and pain, God, I'm going to thank you. Because my life's about you. It's not about me. It's not about what I want, God. My life's about your glory. And that's it. And you know what? Jesus himself lived that way. You know that, don't you? That's exactly how Jesus lived. Here is God the Son, Jesus Christ. He became a human being. He submitted his whole life to God the Father. Whatever he saw God doing, he did. Whatever he heard God saying, he said. He heard the Father, and he spoke. He submitted himself at every turn to his Father's will, whether he wanted to or not. Why? Because Jesus lived for God's glory, not his own. Anytime people praise Jesus and worship Jesus, Jesus pointed to his Father. And it wasn't just Jesus' life that was for God's glory. It wasn't just his life. During Jesus' last night with his disciples, he, he led them off to a quiet place in a garden and he prayed. Jesus knew what was coming later that night and the next morning. And Jesus, the Son of God, prayed to the Father, knowing he was about to go down a path of humiliation and abandonment and excruciating pain. And he, and he took that path voluntarily. Who does that? Someone who is passionate about God's glory. And here's what Jesus said to his father before the dawn of his suffering. He said, now is my soul troubled. And what should I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. And one of the questions that we're going to wrestle with over the course of the next few weeks is, how is God glorified in the death of an innocent man? How is God glorified in that? How is that good? How does that show God's greatness? When an innocent man, God's own son, is humiliated, and shamed, and mocked, and spit upon, and tortured, and executed. How is, that, how is that giving glory to God? We need to know that, don't we? And I just want to give you a hint at the answer this morning. Remember that problem we were talking about earlier, sin? Well, something you should know about sin, and you, some of you already know this. <laughs> you have sin in your heart. And that sin separates you from God. And there is no power and no amount of weight and no amount of skill and no amount of goodness in this entire world that can change that. If, all, if every single person in the world, if 7 billion people in every nation joined together, joined forces, and pooled all of our resources together on your behalf and interceded for you before God and said, God... take us instead of this person as a sacrifice for this person's sin and receive them into your kingdom. You know what would happen? Nothing. Nothing. Because nobody, not all the power or beauty or majesty in all of the universe is big enough to overcome your sin and to give you peace with God. There's only one person who can change that, and that's Jesus. And if you can understand that, then you are beginning to understand God's glory. Nothing mattered more to Jesus than his Father's glory, and nothing should matter more to us. Please join me in prayer. Father God, we thank you for your grace today. We thank you, God, for how great you are. We thank you, Lord, that your victory is secured in the person of Jesus and that in Jesus Christ, you have overcome our sin. And we ask you this morning, God, to remind us of how magnificent you are and how big you are and how glorious you are. And that you would, that you would be the center of our attention. We want to be a people, Lord. We want to be a church that is living and serving and giving for your glory. We're not here to make a name for ourselves. We are not here to make much of this church even, Lord. We are here to point people to the glory of Jesus Christ. And so we pray, Lord, that you would help us to get out of the way so that you can reveal your glory through us. Humble us, Lord, and and use us to make your name great. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.